according to anthropologists, there is something uniquely human. That is fashion. Animals have intelligence to use the tools and environments and communicate with each other, but no animal species wear clothes. If you see animals with the clothes, it's because the humans put clothes on them. Do we have the example of that animal? This animal it belongs to my niece. And, and, uh, this, and then my niece, when she went to Korea, she, she's a rescue dog. She bought this, uh, whatever, dog suit. It's a, in Taekwondo you know, uniform. And this uh, dog name is uh, uh, Jordan because he likes to jump. So they named him after Air Jordan. And the Air Jordan, you know, Jordan didn't say, hi, I'm so, you know, sporty and hyperactive, so give me a, some kind of Taekwondo uniform. That's not what it did. The owner put the uniform on the dog. Now, even in tropical areas, prim primitive humans have developed their own sense of a fashion. So fashion is uniquely and entirely human. You can tell much about someone through their fashion. Everyone has their own fashion statement. And fashion statement is definitely clear self-expression and sometimes even self-revelation. Albert Einstein decided to wear a sweatshirt every day in later in his life because he wanted to save time. For Einstein, time is more precious than appearance. Steve Jobs and other nurse or wannabe impressive nurse, they follow the same suit, even though Steve Jobs' you know, turtleneck is more expensive than a regular suit. So what do you like to wear? What is your favorite clothing? This is my favorite clothing I'm wearing for you. So my favorite you know, clothing, good and free. So this is my daughter's company, my oldest daughter's company. You know, and I don't know what they do, but you know, it's a free. So I got one. And my second favorite, voila! It's a, anything by college apparel I, is my favorite. So I have a, like a seven, eight college apparel. So this is my, my favorite. And then for you, I even have this. Yeah, don't look at my leg, just to look at the socks. Okay. Now, point is, everyone has a favorite clothing. You know, while human fashion changes from time to time, there is a one essential clothing that God wants us to wear. And today, I want to share with you the most essential, actually most eloquent. You know, those of you, if you're new to the forest, I like the word sexy a lot. This is a sexy clothing, attractive clothing, and much more is an eternal clothing that we can and should wear. With that in mind, let's read our text today, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17, responsively. So I'm going to read first, and you follow the next verse. Therefore, as a God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with a compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, 
since the members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, flowers fall. Grass withers, but word of God remains forever. Amen. Today's text begins with a therefore, which refers to a previous section where Paul said, put off the old self and bring on the new self. Because we died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ, we now clothed with Christ and his righteousness. You know, Colossians chapter 3, Paul used a lot of the verb put off, put. You know, uh, put to death your earthly nature. Put away anger, malice, rage, and slander, and filthy language and lies. And prof your old self, but also put on the new self in Christ. So if you put to death, it's our decisive mindset and attitude toward our old self or carnal self before we baptize. Put on is our present, daily, ongoing practice of a living with a Christ. So last Sunday, I challenged everyone to wear Christ. Today, I want to go specifics about how to wear Christ. This passage that we just read had a nine commands, you know, uh, explicit and implicit, you know, nine commands and instructions. And I organized them in four ways, which I call four styles of a spiritual fashion or wearing Christ. And uh, so if we want to wear Christ-centered, God-honoring fashion in life, we need to remember the four styles of a Christian spiritual fashion. So first style is this. To wear Christ means imitating God. To wear Christ means imitating God. Look at the verse, 20, uh, verse 12. Therefore, as a God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here Paul enlisted five virtues for Christians to clothe with. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What's so special about these five virtues? You know, some think, some uh, scholars think that these are the, these five virtues are Colossian version, uh, version of uh, fruit of the Spirit. Do you guys remember fruit of the Spirit? Paul mentioned the Galatians 5.22. You know, their love, joy, peace, patience, uh, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and control. And other New Testament scholars said Paul was uh, actually balancing the five characters of earthly nature that he earlier warned the Colossians to throw away. The sexual impurity, uh, immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, and greed. So, you know, they're trying to figure out why, why, they, why Paul used these five you know, particular uh, virtues. I think more than anything, these five virtues reflect characters of God. Characters of God. Paul wants us to imitate the characters of God in our life. So with that, let me go quickly uh, explain the each virtue. Compassion is the first one, and it's actually the first word to describe God of the Bible, our covenantal God. If you look at the Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, 
when Moses asked God to show himself actually God's face, the first thing God said about himself, that he is a compassionate God. Look at it. As the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Compassion was also the first thing the father of a prodigal son felt when his son was returning home after squandering all family wealth. So our God is a compassionate God. Second, kindness means actually act of that compassion. Kindness is more than feeling. When you say, it's very kind of you, we usually mean means someone's kind word or deed, not just a warm feeling. And actually, that's what the prodigal son's father did in Luke chapter 15. When he saw his son from far distance and they felt the compassion for him, what did the father do? He immediately started running toward the son and hugged him and kissed him, the guy who worked at the pig's farm and smelled like a pig. That's a kindness. Kind welcome. Third virtue is a humility, which is not just divine character. I might say radically divine character. Because the humility explains all about who Christ is and has done for us. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, He, that means Christ, made himself nothing by taking very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. You should recognize that no Greek philosophers and Roman thinkers ever considered humility to be a virtue. They never imagined servanthood and humility are the virtue, let alone divine character. But Bible tells us that humility is the most radical character of God because God uses humility to save us, redeem us. We are going to look at that and during the Advent season, but for now, I want you to know this. God loves the humble. God loves a humble person more than anyone. You know, God loves the poor in spirit, humble people. While God opposed the proud, God loves the humble and pours his grace upon the humble. The fourth one, gentleness. Some English Bible translate meekness. You should know gentleness is not mildness. Or meekness, uh, meekness is not weakness. On the contrary, gentleness means a control or composed goodness. Gentleness actually means holding one's anger or angry reaction to whatever or whoever is provoking. You know, parents understand the need of gentleness, right? Whenever children is, uh, you know, really rowdy, you know, parents understand the need of gentleness. And the many spouses like me, we feel guilty when it comes to gentleness. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28, said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am 
gentle and humble in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. You know, in order to receive their weary and tired people and give them a rest, one must be strong and composed. You know, when uh, tired and uh, uh, weary people come, they're usually cranky. Have you met a hangry, hangry people? You know, to take care of a hangry people, you need to compose yourself. You know, that's, that's what, it takes a great strength of a character and self-control to be gentle in many situations. That's what Jesus is saying. So don't take a gentle lightly. Gentle is solid, deep, strong. Finally, patience in Greek is actually macrothumia. Macro is a, you know, macroeconomic, macro big. Thumia is at the, you know, breathing. So literally it means long breathing or deep sighing. That's the literal meaning of a patience. And that's why some English Bible translated this word patience, long suffering. Patience is intentionally relational and the persistently hopeful. You know, Peter told us the reason Christ's second coming has been, has been slow is because God's patience for all people to repent and recognize Jesus Christ as their Savior. So if you look at the second Peter, verse 3, 9, Peter said this, Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. Now, all these five virtues, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, are divine characters that God offered us in Christ. So let me ask you, how well have you been wearing these five characters of Christ? Do you want to know how well you've been wearing? And if so, then let's test. We're going to read a statement. Do we have the statement? It's a blank statement. So we're going to count, when I count one, two, three, we're going to read, but on the blank statement, put your name, okay? Your full name. So in my case, a Paul Kim, okay? So full name and read the rest of a statement, okay? Count three. One, two, three. Paul Kim is a compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Now, which word do you feel very awkward? That's exactly the fashion or character that God, Holy Spirit, wants you to really work on. The second fashion style that is a Christ-centered is a interacting in love. Interacting in love. Look at the next verse, verse 13 and 14. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a, has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If somehow you are overwhelmed by the five virtues of the first style of a Christian uh, fashion I just you know, uh, shared with, and I have a good news for you. Love is the most integrating and the interwoven virtue of all other virtues. Paul said, of all these virtues, put on love. Apostle Paul tells us, if you don't know what to do, in any kind of situation, you are not sure what to do, just love. 
or put love above all things. You know, when we interact in love, Christ-centered fashion is in intact. On this primacy of love, I want us to know two things, recognize two things. First, New Testament ethics, New Testament ethics centralize love as the supreme virtue of all. New Testament ethics centralize love as supreme virtue of all. You know, many people know Paul said in the first Corinthians 13, 13 that, you know, what is that? The, uh, faith, hope, and love are forever, but greatest of these three is love, right? But not many people know that love never had this supreme position in other ethical systems at the time, such as Greco-Roman philosophies. You know, even Jewish a spiritual community, communities like a Kwamran community, this is a very special Jewish monastic kind of group near the Death Seed area, they had their own community rule where they enlisted all the spiritual virtues and love is not top one. Love is not top one. But New Testament writers like Paul, Peter, James, and John, they all made it supremacy of love. Why? They all learned from Jesus. What did Jesus say about God's law? The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all of our heart and mind and strength, right? And then, second greatest, love our neighbor as ourselves. It all came from God. Jesus said our God is a God of love. His word, the Torah, is a, simply means love. The second recognition is that love is not only supreme, but also serious, serious. Apostle Paul said, bear with each other in love and forgive one another in love. You know, bearing with the other person's burden and forgiving their offense is not an easy task. C.S. Lewis in the Mere Christianity once said this, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive or someone to forgive. And you'll find out that during the Thanksgiving family, you know, gathering. Yeah, something will go wrong. You'll find, you will see that, uh, you know, weird uncle or, you know, the nagging, you know, uh, uh, inappropriate aunt who always asks the wrong question. You know, you will see those people. And I want to say this, true love is tough love. True love is tough love. When you th if you think that love is easy or love is just a feeling or you say like an old pop song, it's so easy to fall in love, let me tell you. It may be easy to fall in love. It's so hard to stay in love. It's so hard to stay in love. Don't forget that love costs God his only son. Don't forget Love, letter Christ to the Calvary. Then how do we wear this supreme, yet serious fashion of love? How can we close ourselves, this all divine but difficult in a virtue? The third style of a Christ-centered fashion gives us a hope and help. That is, incorporating the body fashion together. Okay, for that, let's read verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as a members of a one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Apostle Paul expects us to wear the Christ with a church rather than individually. For him, Christ-centered fashion is actually church uniform. The context of today's passage is a church worship, or you know, New Testament you know, commentators, scholars call it liturgical framework. You know, in verse 16, the message of Christ in Greek text simply is a logos. Logos. Logos simply means a word. Why did the NIV translate it as a message? Because the context was a church. It was, uh, you know, at the church during the worship, New Testament Christians learned the word of God through preaching or pastor giving a message. So when Paul said, that, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, you know what he's actually telling? He was saying that everyone listen to pastor's message well and remember. If it is today, he probably said, take a note. You know, take a note. Once again, New Testament culture was oral culture, where most people were illiterate and they learned the truth, such as the Bible, by, learn, by listening and memorizing. So Apostle Paul did not just command us to wear Christ individually on our own moral willpower, but expect us to wear Christ's honoring fashion as a body of Christ. Now, so this is, uh, we do together as a church. And that this passage, this short, you know, two verses, shows us uh, three important principles about church. I call three Ps, three Ps. There are three Ps. Here we find the peace, precept, and praise. Peace, precept, and praise. So let me look at the peace first. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since the members of one body, you are called to peace. This expression of a ruling peace of Christ was diametrically opposite of a Roman ruling ideology back then. You know, back then, Romans, they justified their colonialism or imperial you know, rule or empire building in the name of a peace. You know, Romans, they believe so-called the Pax Romana or peace of Rome. And what is a Pax Romana? It is based on military power and the coercion. You know, it's a very similar to actually, a little bit similar to Pax Americana. You know, why do you think we are the superpower in the world? Because we are nicer than other people? No, we have a mightiest, you know, um, you know, armed forces. No one can challenge American, you know, armed forces, even China. So, but Christ gave us a different peace, that is, Pax Divina, divine peace that comes from God's mercy and sacrifice of Christ. And then Jesus and Paul said, church is called to be a, such a peacemaker as a Christ follower. Because Jesus Christ is a prince of peace, those who follow Christ, we are not just to love peace, but we are to make a peace. And that's why we pray, we still pray for Ukraine, North Korea, Venezuela, Syria, and even China. By the way, some of you feel, how long, you know, 
that this prayer for Ukraine is in our announcement for more than you know, almost, uh, almost a year now. You know why? The winter came over there. And they don't, because of a Russians bombed everywhere, infrastructure, they don't have any heating. You know, my downstairs heater just broke this morning. And uh, I'm, it's very inconvenient. I can imagine the whole house heater is out. And they're living there every day. Let's really pray for the world, part of the world where human greed and human ideology completely destroying innocent lives and destroying the peace. So let's pray for the restoration of peace. Second P is a precept. Paul said, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Church is a call to teach and admonish one another with a message or I call it precept of Christ. Seriously, I wish Paul said only teach and never mentioned admonish. You know why? Because teach is easy and even fun. Yeah? But admonish is hard and painful. Let me ask you a question today. How many of you have been admonished by your spiritual leaders or pastors in your life? Anybody been admonished or, you know, or, or corrected by a pastor or spiritual leader? Let me see. Listen, okay. I see, oh, wow, several hands. Oh, that's it? Only that side. Oh, okay, one here. Okay, one in the back here. Okay, okay. Very good. I'm encouraged. Okay, that's good. Then you know what I'm talking about. Let me ask you another question. Do you like admonishing or would you like to be admonished? Would you like to give admonishment or would you like to receive admonishment? Which one is good for you? Which one is easy for you? I prefer the latter. I, I, I prefer to receive admonish than give the admonish. You know? I'm a, a youngest of uh, three. I'm a bottom of a totem pole in my house. So naturally, I'm a people pleaser because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a youngest. So I, I'm supposed to try to please everyone. So I like to be, I'd rather be corrected than correcting. But Bible calls pastors not only teach, but admonish. And uh, according to the dictionary, you know what admonish is? It means a caution, advice against, scold, urge to do a duty. Admonishing is not easy for me. So let me, make, uh, let, me, let me warn you and prepare you and actually pray for me. It's a prayer request. But let me, let, me, let me tell you this. When I call once in a while, Something about you that you don't like, remember, it's much harder for me. It's much harder for me. One duty, pastoral duty, that I don't want to do is admonishing. But Bible calls me to do it because that's a pastoral duty. You know? On that note, I just want to say this. 
Somehow, I feel that uh, this generation of uh, people, especially young people, I'm talking about you, those in 20 and, you know, whatever, you know, I feel because maybe I have a bad experience in our church or whatever, when I was young and when my pastor called out, you know, me, my first immediate, you know, feeling was, actually feeling was gratitude because he took an interest in me and put himself, and so I was grateful to my pastor. Unless he really cared about me, he would not point it out. You know, indifference is the worst, right? He called, he called me out. And second thing, I felt sorry to putting him in that kind of situation. So I gave a good heed and tried to correct myself. You know, a few times I did a, a admonishing our church. I guess I'm not good because reaction was heavy. There was a reaction, immediate reaction. And then, you know, they left the church. You know? So those are, we have seen so many newcomers. I want to tell you. If you cannot respect me as a pastor or spiritual leader, and then you, by that I mean you cannot give me a benefit of doubt when I pointed out something in your life, then you need to rethink about forest. Or you need to think about church altogether. And definitely you need to find a different church. Because when you come to church, you're not just, you know, going through the motion. We are here to grow spiritually together. Amen? You know, when you join the team sport, and when you have a coach, do you listen to your coach? When your coach corrects you, wouldn't you change? What's the difference when you come to the church? Why do you insist that I still want to play in my way? Church, you don't do that. More than ever, I obey the call of admonishment because this church is not my church or your church. It belongs to Christ. This is a Christ church. I really pray for us to become a biblical church. And for me, biblical church is the church not only accept everyone, but also admonish everyone. There are churches that just accept people without admonishment. Yeah, there are churches like that. And, uh, you know, but, uh, and also there are some churches that I know, my, some of my friends' church, they do extreme admonishing. I think both is to, you know, is to, we're trying to keep the balance. In community of God, we do accept one another with a love, but at the same time, we admonish each other with a precept of Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's do this together. Third P is appraising. Psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God. I read the good portions of a, a, a commentary about you know, what each uh, term means. But one thing for sure is that early church is so musical, dynamically musical. They have all kinds of uh, songs. You know, you saw the psalm, that means from the Old Testament. Hymns, they are, they are like official songs, doctrinal songs. Songs from the Spirit, that means very spontaneous kind of song they sang right away. Early church is an incredibly musical church. And the, it, it is known fact the New Testament church uses hymns too, not for just for worship, but educate people. That's what we found, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cosmic Christology in chapter 1, verse 15 to 18, and also Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to know important historical fact that uh, B 
Biblical religion is a musical religion. Yes, biblical religion is a musical religion. Both Judaism and Christianity recognize and utilize the songs for their worship for a long time, more than any other religion. Compared to the you know, other major religions in the world, like Islam or Buddhism, you name it. They have a chant, but they don't have a colorful, you know, long history of praising and songs like us. You know why? Our object of worship is a living God. Who wants to hear us? Who wants to really have a personal relationship with us? Amen? That's why. You know, when I was a Buddhist in South Korea growing up, very interesting thing is that I never sang a hymn. Buddhists don't have a hymn. And then, a few decades ago, I noticed in South Korea, you know what happens? South Korean Buddhist temple now, they have a Buddhist hymn. Did you know that? They have a Buddhist. So I, I kind of flipped the channel. I went to the Buddhist channel. Surprisingly, they are, they are not chanting. They are singing hymns. There's a choir in Buddhist you know, temple. Guess where they learn? It's all from church. Why? They know power of praising. Power of praising. I think these days, no one has an excuse not to praise God. I mean, no Christian has an excuse to praise God because we have not just the Holy Spirit. You know what we have? We have YouTube. We have YouTube. I don't know about you. I don't play instrument. I try to learn to play instrument. I, I took the even guitar lesson. I asked our church leaders, church praising team to, you know, teach me the simple three chords. They said, oh, Pastor Paul, you just need a what, DA, whatever. See, that's all you need. I try. I somehow, musical instrument and me, we don't work together. But it's okay. I have a YouTube. You know why I have a YouTube? And uh, when... I try to pray, and sometimes my heart is so heavy. On my mind, they keep going to the dark place. Guess what? I turn on the, my favorite praise songs in YouTube and sing along. Sometimes I stand, you know, some, you know, and I shout. And Paul said, that's what we do together as a church. That's why this praising is so precious. It's not how well our praising team performs. I don't care about their performance. It's about we singing together to praise God. Amen? On that note, I pray. I really thank God for our praising leaders. And uh, we're trying to make it better. And I hope more people join our praising team. Now, let me go to the final one. Final, you know, style of Christ-honoring fashion. Is invoking thanksgiving. Invoking thanksgiving. Look at the last verse of today's passage. It's a beautiful verse that I hope you memorize it. That whatever you do, whether in words or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The last style of a Christ-centered fashion is invoking thanksgiving. You know, Apostle Paul actually mentioned the thanksgiving in three verses. Verse 15, he said, be thankful. Verse 16, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. You know, along with the love, I believe that gratitude or thanksgiving is the most essential part of a Christian fashion and life. You know, for me, thanksgiving is a matching, matching part of a fashion, like a matching shoes. You know, when you have a best, you know, a suit, you don't just wear any shoes. You try to 
make it right shoes, right? So today, see, you notice my belt is and shoes is matching, right? Yep, I'm matching. Okay. I think a most matching lifestyle and heart to God's grace is thanksgiving. And this final style actually is based on the first phrase of today's passage. Verse 12, Paul said, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You know, what we are called to wear is God's great blessing and our highest honor. As I said before, Christian ethic is not just another duty. It is a privilege more than duty. We do good things by product of receiving God's grace. You know, we don't do good things to receive grace. We do good things because we already received the grace. So let me make it clear. When Paul called us to do all these things, he was not saying that so that you can be saved. No. Because you're already saved by grace. Do the good things for the glory of God who graciously saved you. Amen? Don't get the order mixed. Apostle Paul reminded the Colossians and by that all Christians that we are God's chosen people and holy and dearly loved. You know, God's chosen people does not mean Gentiles replace the Jewish people, but we also invited to serve God and his kingdom purpose as adopted children of Abraham. That's it. And I want you to clearly know biblical meaning of election it's not about salvation, but it's about service. It's not about who's going to heaven and who is not. No, it's all about the serving God. Amen? It's not about predestination. Election actually means a purpose of God's people. God elected us to serve him, just as he did for Abraham. And the holy means set apart. We are set apart from, to God. We are different from the, those people in the world who do not know God. Just as married people are committed to their spouses while singles are not, we are committed to God. And the last you know, expression, dearly beloved, I want to say this. I want to give a little testimony on the book of Colossians. I really rediscovered God's love for the church in Colossians study. You know, this small letter is actually a surprise study to me because Colossians is a junior letter to Ephesians. You know, uh, New Testament scholars, they think that both Colossians and Ephesians written by Paul at the same time, same place when he was in prison, actually delivered by the same letter carrier named Atticus. And a lot of their content kind of, uh, you know, similar. You know, the only thing is Ephesians is longer. A Colossians is shorter. So they're, they're saying it's a, Colossians is like a downtown Dallas, and Ephesians is like a New York City, Manhattan. You can't just drop the downtown Dallas into Manhattan. It'll disappear, right? Because Manhattan is huge. That's kind of a, you know, expectation, you know, I had for the Colossians. And the reason I decided to preach in Colossians because four years ago, I actually thoroughly went over the Ephesians. But last year, we did a non-Pauline episode. 
uh, uh, letter of, of James. So in order to go back to, you know, Pauline letter, I kind of using a Colossians like a booster shot. Reminder. Do you know booster shot? Right? And then I found out this is not a booster shot. This is real. You know what is real? Here I found cosmic Christology. Yeah, if you don't, haven't heard my sermon on cosmic Christology, check it out on our podcast. Even though I'm the one who preached, I heard it three times. Seriously. It's funny. I preached, I forgot, and I listened. I said, oh, that's good. I need to listen again. So I listened to my own sermon three times. I'm not egomaniac, okay? I can't stand my own voice or sermon. But that one, content-wise, really I need to remember over and over again. You know why? Cosmic Christology, the Paul wrote, is so important because it shows how much God loves the small churches. You know, Colossians was an insignificantly small church. Yet the Christology in this small letter is infinite and significant. And the Apostle Paul didn't write this a cosmic Christology too. Picture, you know, the, the impressive churches in the big cities like uh, Imperial Rome or cosmopolitan, you know, Corinth or, you know, faithful, friendly, you know, Philippi. But to Colossae, the church and city he's never been to. Far more, this church, after Paul wrote this letter, a few decades later, according to Pauline, you know, scholars, stopped existing because there was a major earthquake. So by the time Book of Revelation was written and the seven churches of Asia Minor was mentioned, Colossae was Asia Minor but didn't make that list. That means there's a strong possibility church was gone. But Paul's heart for this church is bigger than ever. Paul expressed the greatest Christology, his understanding of Christ, to this small church, strange church that he never been to. Do you guys remember that I'm quoting the uh, Ryan, you know, Schellenberg's, you know, said that as a Colossians, who are rat-tech groups of a misfit who are caught in the Jewish superstition they heard second-handed? You know, Gospel of Jesus Christ is not a main theology of Jewish people back then. We call it the Jewish superstition because even Jews, they, Jewish people, they kicked out all the Christian Jews out of synagogue, start kicking out. So it's a sort of a Jewish heresy or cult. That was a Christian, early Christian was. And then they heard the second hand. That means not directly from Paul, but Paul's apostle, Epaphras. That's a Colossians. And Colossians, they didn't have a priest or a temple. They have nothing to show to their neighbors about their new religion except uh, Christ in their heart. Do you? I was so blown away this Paul's love for Colossians because I feel like Forrest is a Colossians. We are insignificant, small, who knows how long we will survive? You know, every time I hear people praying for the, thank God for the growth of our church, I say, we are in Texas. This is no growth. This, uh, well, we, we, our beginning is so small, we call it a growth. But who knows? We don't have a building. 
we have uh, one pastor, you know. I mean, we have uh, good Bible teachers. So, but who knows how long we're going to, you know, last. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Why? If we do what Paul said, whatever we do in word or deed, if we do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Father, you and I will be okay. Amen? Thanksgiving, that is the ultimate, ultimate wardrobe we want to wear. Not only seasonally, but every day. You know, my hero, Karl Barth, once said this. Grace and gratitude belong together like a heavens and earth. Gratitude evokes a grace like a voice and echo. Gratitude follows a grace as a thunder follows a lightning. You know, one time Karl Barth was asked what he think about the, uh, Hamlet, famous Shakespeare's Hamlet's you know, uh, uh, monologue that to be or not to be, that's the question, right? And the Karl Barth answer was, for me, the real question is to give thanks God or not to give thanks God. Who do you give thanks to God? To who, who give you thanks? That's what it matters. And he was speaking in the context of while German people giving thanks to Hitler. The German Christian nationalism. You know, this, uh, this past week, I was in the wake of this largest Protestant gathering in Texas. The 1800 Texas Baptists get together in record convention. And there was every year we make a new resolution. This year, resolution was about freedom, and there's some young pastors who want to include the Christian nationalism to denounce that Texas Baptists do not endorse or support or partner with anything to do with the Christian nationalism. That was original you know, uh, recommendation to resolution. And then Christian nationalism was taken down. It was rejected. They said, that's too political, hot potato, we throw away. And then there was a conversation among some theologian and young pastor, and the one, one person said, ah, oh, you know, if we put that one, that, that means a whole, whole thing might be misunderstood. They, people took it more politically than theological. So it's a good to throw away. Guess what? Your pastor stood up and said, that's wrong. We shouldn't name evil evil. We will never make an eternal statement of our faith. That's a God's job. Our job in each given context, whatever evil the world throws us, we call it as an evil, as a faithful witness of a great gospel of Jesus Christ. We should call it. Our duty is to call the Christian nationalism evil so the future generation will know we've been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, I was talking Asian-American pastor, so who listened to me? Nobody. But point is this. What matters at the end of everything? Do we take things for granted? Or do we take things with gratitude? This is a thanksgiving. What are we thankful for? If a Christ is a Lord of everything, when Paul said, do everything in the name of Christ because he is the Lord of everything. Nothing escapes our Lord's solution. Political, material, financial, relational, everything is under Christ. In everything, we see his grace and we give thanks. Let's pray.
As you prepare to pray, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a Christ and his grace in your heart? Do you want to wear the most essential, elegant, and the eternal clothing that Christ died to give you? Do you want to make a Thanksgiving more than a calendar event, but a personal reality? Then today, in prayer, you can confess him your Lord and Savior, and you can claim him as your God. Let's pray.